morning. Zach, before you sit down, I want everyone to know that we had a men's conference Friday, and we finished uh, late, probably like 7 yesterday evening, and Zach did all of the worship. He did all of the singing, and I'm surprised he's up here this morning, but we thank you for all you do for us, okay? Give him a hand. Thank you so much. We're in the Gospel of John, uh, 13th chapter. We left off around verse 30. One of these days I'm going to forget where I left off. I'm going to ask you guys to remind me. (laughs) Thank you. Verse 30. (laughs) This is right after Judas Iscariot departure. And Jesus, he immediately begins to prepare his disciples for things shortly to come. It was almost like a stench in the room. Even though Jesus, I'm sure, was praying that, that Judas would not go the way, the route that he goes, Jesus is still offering him repentance, forgiveness, because remember, uh, Judas was sitting in the place of honor. But now that he goes, everything is set in motion. His betrayal, Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trials, six of them, and his crucifixion. Of course, to be followed by the great resurrection and then his ascension. And then he would return to the Father for these three and a half years. Remember, he had said, I'm in the bosom of the Father, and, the bosom, and he's in me. And the things I do and the things I say, they do not come from me, but they come from the Father. So even when he's down here, he's in intimate relationship with them. So we'll be looking at Jesus's, we can call this his farewell discourse in which he prepares his disciples who will begin to take the baton and run with it until the Lord calls them home. And there's a sort of a cadence, a meter, or a flow to what Jesus begins to say to them. But verse 30 tells us, having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Jesus, once again, he can begin to share freely, say the things that's on his heart. Satan, of course, has done his sifting with Judas. We will remember and we will see that Satan sifts Peter also. But Peter converts and he returns to the Lord. Iscariot had the same opportunity, but he didn't. So Judas has paved his own way to hell. Verse 31 tells us, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified. Now his fame and his renown, that what we see in him and what we know of the father can be displayed in a way that it has not been displayed before. Glory, because we will be looking at that word a lot this morning. It's God's The Old Testament speaks of God's Shekinah glory, 
The, the, the New Testament speaks of the kabod, the weight, his weightiness, his heaviness. Because of his holiness, no one can stand and be in his presence. So all of that Jesus has put on a shelf and said, I'm going down here to do what you've called me to do, that I want to do. And he longs to have his glory back. But even in his fleshly frame, they know that there's something different about Jesus. Once again, as we shared in 1 Peter about sufferings and trials that the believer will go through on this earth, we should not think it strange the fiery trials that come our way. Matter of fact, we should expect them to come our way. And when Pastor Jonathan, he kicked it off and he came up here and he began to speak on the first thing he said about trials and suffering, that we serve a holy God. God is set apart. He's otherness from anything else. He's the creator. And now that we are in the family of God, we should be set apart. And in a way we are, but we should live holy lives, distinctive lives. And that brings glory and honor to the Father. That brings glory and honor to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going away. I've manifested the Father's glory. He matter of fact, he says this in John, the, pro, the prologue, chapter 1 in verse 14, he says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he says, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title that he used of himself. And he picks up that concept of the glorious Son of Man that Daniel chapter 7 speaks about. Where Jesus is given authority and glory and sovereign power. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not Pass away. In John's gospel, the glorifying of the Son of Man involves suffering. Once again, we can't get away from it. His suffering and his death, as well as his sovereign power. And Jesus will enter, the only way he will enter his glory is through his death and crucifixion. And again, his resurrection. It, 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 as I've been reading through the Bible, especially the gospel, glory and suffering is intertwined. They're intermingled. You can't get away from the other. If we're following the Lord, we're going to go through tribulations. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus was glorified in giving his life for sinful man. And that the glory of his gracious character is most clearly seen there. He says, and God is glorified in him. In Jesus' self-sacrificing love for humanity, the glory of God was revealed in Jesus Christ. The Father loves the world. We always seem to say, hey, we, we get the picture of Jesus is trying to keep the Father from pouring his wrath out on us. 
But it was the Godhead who said, hey, let's do this. God loves us. The Father loves us as much as the Son and the Spirit. So he says in verse 32, if God is glorified in him through the Son's obedience even to death, God will also glorify him in himself and glory and glorify him immediately, speaking of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. I've been reading this verse a lot. Allow me to read it again because it blows my mind every time I read it. Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, that he humbled himself. God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, they're around this triclinium. Judas is gone, an intimate setting, and Jesus continues to pour into them. He says, little children. He could have grabbed any other name he wanted. Hey, you guys, my disciples, my apostles. But this is an intimate setting. And once again, he shut himself off from the world now. He's speaking to his disciples, and he bears his heart, and he calls them Little children. Can you imagine? Uh, most scholars think that the, the disciples, their apostles, were from the age of probably 15 all the way up to the age of 25 or 30, and Peter being the oldest. Peter being this big, burly guy, a man's man, and he's sitting around the table, and they say, Jesus says, little children. It's an intimate term. It's, there's a closeness to it. He says, I shall be with you a little while longer. Technion is little children. It affected this little children term, affected John the Beloved so much that when he wrote his first epistle, he uses the term nine times. Jesus was doing what he said he would do. He was loving them to the end. He says, you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, those that opposed him, where I am, you cannot come. He had said that in chapter 7. He said that in chapter 8. And they couldn't follow Jesus, he was saying, into the Father's presence. These Jewish religious leaders and those that did not believe in him. He says, where I am, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, speaking of his disciples... He's saying, you can't follow me now, but later you will be able to follow me. Look at verse 36, the latter part of 36. He says, but you shall follow me afterward. After his work of redemption is completed, he's paved the way for believers to follow him. But the Jews who rejected Jesus, they could never follow him. They have paved their road to unbelief, which leads to hell. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, 
that you also love one another. He tells them this in chapter 13, I think around verse 34, and he says it again around verse chapter 15. But here he refers it to a new commandment. And you might say, well, it's not really new, but what Jesus subtracts and adds to it is new. Because Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 tells us, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If we just did that, we'd stand out like stars in the night. That's tough. But now Jesus, being who he is, he ups the ante, so to speak. He says that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is. That you also love one another. Jesus' love command was new because it demands a new kind of love, his kind of love. He says, by this all will know that you are my disciples. As I was reading the passage this morning in the office, when I read verse 35, I said, if we did that by the power of the Holy Spirit, whether we ever said a word to anyone out in public, if we did that, Jesus is saying they would know we are a different kind of people just by our love. He says it's not by how much you can speak in tongues, how much you can prophesy, how much Bible reading you do daily. He says it's not about any of those things. It's about loving one another. Everyone will know that you've been with Jesus Christ if we love one another. This this is the kind of love that's an essential indicator of who we really are. Because who we really are will be displayed by our love for one another. 1 John 2, verse 9 tells us, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. John should know he walked with the Lord. First Peter adds on to it, chapter 1, the latter part of verse 22, he says this, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. You can serve, you can minister all you like, but if there's an absence of love in your speech with others, a kindness, a sacrificial love towards one another, those are red flags. And those red flags tells us if you do that enough, you might not be who you say you are. It boils down to loving one another. That's what Jesus is wanting to to pour into his disciples before he leaves them. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter hasn't heard anything about the new commandment. All Peter wants to know about, his brain has locked. Where are you going? (laughs) The big guy. Well, you can look at that a couple of different ways now. (laughs) He's stuck on where Jesus is going. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, 
you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then he messes up a little bit. The Peter that we are. He says, I will lay down my life for your sake. He's not willing to accept Jesus's know that you can't come right now. You're not ready right now. You need more than your willpower to follow me. You need more than a 10-step or a 12-step program to follow me. It's not about uh, Ogmandino, whatever you think you can do, your, your, your positive thinking can't get you into the kingdom of God. You need me to go lay the, pave the way, give up my life, a holy, blameless, sinless life, and then offer it to you, and you accept me, and then you can follow me. Peter's getting ahead of the Lord, something we can do at times. Jesus answered him. I would have told Peter, be quiet. You can't do it. That would have been the nicest way. My nicest, I could have, could have did it. But not our Savior. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Listen. When we think we've come to the point of full surrender to Christ, we say things like that. We will never be that forceful and and just black and white that I know I can do it. No temptation can touch me. I'm okay. I've been walking with Jesus long enough. No, it doesn't happen here. Until we see him, the Bible tells us face to face, then we will be like him. Then we can kind of... I'm okay. (laughs) But until then, if not for the grace of God, so go I. That's the way it works. He says, I will lay down my life for you. And once again, when we become impressed with the fullness of surrender, we're in trouble. Until we become broken and aware of our frailty, that's when we're on solid ground. But when we say, I can do this, I've, I've been a Christian long enough, 30 years, I'm okay. That's when Jesus will say, well, I've got to refine you. I've got to add something to you that will make you look to me and, and that you will humble yourself and see how much you need me. And that's what he begins to do with Peter here. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And I believe by this time, all of the boys are stressing out because if Peter, if he says this to Peter, what about us? And on the heels of what Jesus says to Peter right here, there's no chapter break. That's there for us. The conversation continues because by now their hearts are agitated. It's agitated. Their hearts are agitated because he said, hey, I'm going, I'm going to leave you. Right now you can't come, but hang in there. You'll be able to come. And then when Peter says, Lord, 
I don't care if all of the rest of them deny you. I will never deny you. I'm going to follow you. And he says, no, you're not. You're going to deny me before daybreak. And so they're all on edge now. Wow. And he begins to do what a loving Savior does when we're agitated, when we're frustrated, when things aren't going our way, when it seems like the world is just falling apart around us. He huddles us up, and he says, let not your heart be troubled. In fact, the language is, stop allowing your heart to be troubled. Your is in the plural, heart is singular, and he looks at all of the boys, and he says, this is something you have to do. My word is true, but don't allow your heart to be troubled. The responsibility is on the individual. And then he says, when he says, not not to let your heart be troubled, I want you to think with me for a minute. Because a chapter ago, two chapters ago, Jesus says he was troubled. Remember, he was troubled at the tomb of Lazarus. And he wasn't troubled over the death of Lazarus. He knew he was going to resurrect him. But he was troubled by the effect of sin. Because Romans tells us sin brought death. It was never supposed to be. We were created in the image and likeness. And we had nothing to do with death. And remember when they brought the Greeks, the Gentiles, to Jesus. He knew by them bringing the Gentiles that his time was running short. It was running out. And he tells us, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He was aware of what was lying in ahead for him, his death. And in Gethsemane, in the garden, when he sweats these great drops of blood, it isn't because the physical toil of what he's about to go through, but he will be separated from the Father, something we will never understand. And it says he was troubled in the light of those things. In chapter 13, speaking of of the one that would betray him, Judas, he says the same thing there, and he was troubled. Jesus is troubled about betrayal. He is troubled about death. Death is troubling. It's very troubling. As believers, we know we have a hope. We know what Scripture says about that. We know that we will see that person again if they are believers. But death is still painful. Because there's something terribly wrong about death. I heard one pastor say, the problem with death, there's no file you can put it in. Because it was never meant to be. When he created Adam and Eve, there there was nothing semblance of death until it happened. So when death comes, we mourn. Some mourn longer than others because you're you're never comfortable. There's no place to put it, and you can just set it aside. 
And Jesus is going through all of those things here. And he's trying to calm the disciples down. And he says, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me. You're going to turn away. You may have did something wrong. You can't believe you did it. And you turned away. And you turned back to God. He still loves you. You may think, I said something wrong and I had a, a bad attitude when I said it. Jesus understands, and you go back to him, and you repent, and you're back in fellowship with him. You may have thought you've blown it, but if you're a born-again believer, you never can blow it. Repent and come back to Jesus. And he's wanting us to know this morning, as he's wanting his boys to know at that day, let not your heart be troubled. Over inflation, over high gas prices, over the crime rate of a, of a divorce or a broken marriage or family members not being saved, Jesus is saying, just calm down. I'm on the throne. I will always be on the throne. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. And as I was reading it this morning, I've been, be, being at my age, I've been to many funerals. And I cannot recall one, especially, I'm not going to say it, but usually when they're walking down the aisles, this is the scripture they always read, and I understand why. And I want to share something with you, because when he says, let not your heart be troubled, he says, in my father's house are many mansions. John uses father 122 times in his gospel. That's a lot. He uses it 22 times in his epistles in Revelation. He uses Father in his gospel more than the entire Bible. So what Jesus was saying, it stuck in his heart. And chapter 14 is the Father's chapter here. It's the, the most important part of being a father in the Scriptures. Jesus this night is speaking to them about separation. Their, their hearts are being troubled telling them where he is going, and at that point, they cannot follow, and they were very disturbed by what he was saying. And 23 times he's going to tell them, not about God, but the Father. There's an intimacy there. And I didn't say it at the beginning. I'll say it now. Happy Father's Day to every father here and that's watching. A father is someone who does his part in bringing a life into the world. A father is someone who provides a home, and he will tell us about that. A father is someone who raises and instructs and teaches. A father is someone who disciplines his kids. 
A father is someone who imparts the best, who takes a stand on behalf of his children, even when his children, they don't think he's doing the right thing or saying the right thing. We've all been through that. And I pray that all of you guys have or had a good father. And I know there may be some that didn't, but let me allow me to introduce you to the best father that you could ever have, God the Father. He understands us. He loves us, and he will always be there for us. And that's what Jesus is trying to let them know here. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's wanting them to understand something here Yes, betrayal is troubling. Yes, death is troubling. But in regards to heaven, I don't want you to be troubled about what I'm telling you there. I'm going to prepare a place for you there. You don't have to worry about that. No matter how many times people may try to cast a dispersion on the scriptures, God's word will stand. He goes to prepare a place for us. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he, once again, he will prepare that place by his death and resurrection. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Jesus himself will come and receive us. He says, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, we have to understand he's speaking to these Jewish disciples here, and they have a total different scenario that is supposed to happen. Because once again, they're thinking that Jesus, once he resurrects, he's going to set up his kingdom And every Jew will be under his fig tree and his vine, and they're going to live and reign with Messiah forever. That's what they're looking for here. And that's not bad theology, because that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen then. Matter of fact, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 teaches about the second coming, and they talk about the return of Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom, but not John, because John is written for the church. And John writes the fourth gospel much later. And the book of John, he's speaking, there's a different hope for the believer. And that's absent from the body, present with the Lord. This is truly John's teaching of the second coming. And his teaching is, I'm going somewhere else to prepare, prepare a place for you. And it's not a false hope I'm here to tell you this morning. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. No doubt speaking of the rapture of the church here. But also, I want us to understand that those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, they are already in the presence of the Lord enjoying his fellowship right now. I believe, and I said this last Sunday, that when I give up the ghost, 
I was talking to Lydia. This is a rabbit trail, but only for, for only for a second. And I was in the house when daddy passed. And I wanted to be in the room when he passed. But he was just breathing hard, and we would take turns being in the room. And I, I said, well, I'm going outside. And, and when, when I went outside, I said, Lord, just, just go on and take him. I don't know if he was suffering because he had pancreatic cancer, but he was just heaving at that time, sitting up in the bed. And Lydia went in there, and I was asking her, what did it look like? Because she saw him, and I've heard people talk about it. And, and she said, Daddy, he, 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 he said, and then he said, and it was over with. And I said, 80 years that quick was going to be with the Lord. And I, then I started saying, it's amazing. And we should take care of our bodies and we should exercise and do all those things. But I say it all the time, this is a carcass. <laughs> it's not going. We're going to get a new one. But 80 years and He's with the Lord, and that's everyone that knows the Lord. Jesus, I believe, took him by the hand and said, we're out of here. And believe me, he was a believer, and he was ready to go at that time. And Jesus, once again, is trying to calm their nerves. And where I go, you know, back to the Father, and the way you know, the crucifixion. Thomas said to him, Thomas says, stop the presses. I'm I'm confused here. Lord, we do not know where you are going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I'm so glad Thomas asked the question because I love this verse. If he would have never asked the question, we would have never had this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Greek grammarist Weiss, this is how he translates it. I alone am the way. I alone am the truth. I am alone the way, the life. He says, no one comes, and that's in the present tense. No man has ever come, no man is coming, and no man will ever come to the Father except through me. This is a radical, intolerant statement here, but it's filled with hope for those that believe in Jesus Christ. Who told Oprah Winfrey? that there were many ways to heaven. Was it Eckhart Tolle? How does he know? He's never been there. There's only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 tells us, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus says in verse 7, if you had known me, you, have, you would have known my father also. And it seems as if there's a slight rebuke there to him. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father. And it's sufficient for us. It suffices us. It will be okay. And I'm sure Philip is thinking about when Moses asked to see the glory of Yahweh God. And that's always been one of man's innate things he he wants. Show me, God. As we were having our discussions, 
yesterday, talking about many different things. How do we reach the laws? What method? How do we do those things? And once again, as I was reading it this morning, I thought about Romans. Because God truly has already paved the way if you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Because Romans 1.18 tells us that everyone suppresses the truth of God. They know there's a God. And you have to suppress that because the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth this handiwork. So we're already on solid footing there. But we need to go in love and tell them about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and he's God. And he will take you however you are and he will clean you up. We don't do the cleaning. We proclaim the gospel, and he does the cleaning, and he's wanting them to know this. He says in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Remember, he has said in John 12, 45, And he who sees me, him who sees him who sent me, which is another staggering claim that Jesus makes here. Everything I do, I do because the Father has commanded me to do it. I do, because, I do it because I want to please the Father. I'm in the, he was standing there talking to the religious leaders, and he says, I am presently in the bosom of the Father. Wow. That's amazing. There's no theophany there. He says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. He says in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He has said in uh, John 5, 19, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. And since this father's day, I'm reminded of Bright when he was a little boy and he would see me do things and he would emulate them and do them. And every once in a while, I'd do something I shouldn't do, and he'd try to emulate those, and I had to say, no, 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 don't emulate that one. But the point is, that's what Jesus does with his Father. Everything he does is altogether lovely, and the Son does the same thing here. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the charge every believer has here this morning. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, I don't think he's speaking of more number of works because in the gospel, I think Jesus does around 36 uh, miracles just looking at sheer numbers. And in the, the book of Acts, the apostles, they do about 22. So he's speaking and he, and he can't say, he's not saying uh, you guys are greater than me because he's already said 
the master is greater than the servant. So he's speaking of greater in scope, in capacity, because I'm sending you 11 out, and the 11 is going to multiply to more. He's already sent out the 70, and he's saying, because there's more of you, you will do greater things. Remember at the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches one sermon, and how many? 3,000 are saved. That's what he's speaking of, that you will do greater in scope. You will do greater in number here. That's why it's expedient that I go. And he will say that here. And thinking of that, Jesus says, when he sends out the 70 and they come back, he says, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you. But rejoice that your names have been written in heaven. He also says, what does it profit a man if he gains the world, the cosmos, everything, and loses his soul? Jesus said a single soul, one soul, is more valuable than the whole entire universe. I want us to think about that. Think about that kind of value system and the value system we have today, where where media, they're constantly bombarding us to take care of Mother Earth and and all the carbon footprinting and, and climate change and all of those things. And of course, we need to be good stewards over this earth. But it's not about the earth because they have inverted it that they care more about the earth than they do human souls. And Jesus is saying one human soul is more valuable than the entire cosmos. And that's the way when we meet, when we are around other believers, remember that. That's why uh, the apostle said, maybe it was Jesus says, let your words be seasoned with salt, full of grace, full of grace and with salt, seasoned with salt. We need to be careful how we speak to one another here. He says in verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He's preparing them for prayer. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Victor, this is not a blank check. Once again, I can't pray for a Bentley, and I'm going to receive it. I can pray for it, but I'm not going to receive it, put it that way, because that's not the Father's heart. That's not Jesus' heart. What he's saying, if I pray anything according to his heart, Lord, would you please save my son? Lord, I've been praying for him for many years now. Lord, would you please open a door across the street so we can go in and share the gospel with the people there and just plow tough, hard ground and not give up. That's Jesus's heart. That's what he wants. So we should go with full confidence and do those things. That's what he's saying here. He says, if you pray anything in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he says in verse 15, if, if you love me, keep my commandments. And what he's saying there, 
truly in a nutshell because he's, the Greek says, if you continually love me and if you continually keep my commandments, he's saying talk is cheap. Let's walk it out here. He says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you, the paraclete, and he will be in you when I'm finished my course. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In verse 26, look down to that. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John is remembering these things by the power of the Holy Spirit. The average lifespan in the first century was 40 years of age. No penicillin, antibiotics, things like that. 40 years of age. The Apostle John lives to 90-something. And 90 years of age, the Holy Spirit is speaking to him, and he's pinning these things there. Matter of fact, chapter 14, 15, 16, we have Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. Those are three great chapters to read if you want to know truly about the Holy Spirit. And the reason I say that, we have on one side of the spectrum, charismania, that being slayed in the Spirit and everything else. And then you have on the other side of the spectrum, because of that, the sensationalists who say that the Spirit is not for today. But there's a balance. And if you want to know truly who the person of the Holy Spirit is, Jesus teaches us that right here. There's so many abuses about the Holy Spirit, but there, there should be a balance. And the Holy Spirit, don't get it twisted, is a person. Not a it, not a force, but he's a person. And it's not so much about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about the person of the Holy Spirit because Jesus presents him that way. Now, look again at verse 16, the latter part. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, Allah's, another of the same kind. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And when you've seen the Father, you've seen the Spirit. And when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Don't worry, I'm still going to be here. John is the only one in his gospel to use the word comforter. Matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he uses a different word. He says this, my little children, still thinking about the Savior on that night. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. That's the word comforter, the paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's very important. This is the one who comes along and stands beside us 
who will be in us when we become believers. He strengthens us. He strengthens us. He counsels us. You're wise to go to a multitude of counselors. You're more wise to go to that multitude of counselors and there's believers. But you're the most wise after you've gone to that multitude of counselors that's believers and fall on your knees and say, Lord, now speak to me. That's what he's for. That's who he is. He comforts us. It's implying that Jesus, he had done all of these things when he was on the earth, but now he's going away. And he's also implying that we need the Holy Spirit to strengthen, counsel us, and comfort us. If no one else does those things, we have enough because it's the Spirit whose job it is, position, whose title it is to do do those things. Jesus did them physically. He's going away, and the Spirit will come inside of us, and he will do those things spiritually. And I can testify of those things. And many of you can testify of those things because when my, my, I wasn't a believer when my brother passed, but when my dad passed, it was the Holy Spirit who came to me and undergirded me and said, everything is going to be all right. And it was. He says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever to be home, to be at home to make his abode with us. And then he says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him, not, when I speak of seeing, even though the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows, shows forth his handiwork, that's general grace for everyone. But that pulling, but that calling, you know you need to do something about your sin. And you know there's someone who can redeem you and give you grace to come to me. That's what he's speaking of here. Unless the Lord calls, unless the Lord draws, you will not come to him. That's amazing grace. That's amazing grace that every believer should shout hallelujah because without him calling us, we would have never come to him. And Jesus is telling his disciples this. He says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. He says, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He had been with them through the person of Jesus, but he will be with them in the person of the Holy Spirit when Jesus hands the baton to the Holy Spirit and he comes inside of the believer. Then he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. That word orphans is only used one more place. And that's in James chapter 1, verse 27, when James tells us, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and, keep, and to keep oneself unspotted 
from the world. Jesus tells his disciples, I will come to you. He's speaking of the presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. After his glorification, the world will remain unable to behold him. He remains hidden except through the believer's witness. But he said, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, verse 20, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments, I'm going to break these words down for a minute because they're, they're very important. When he says he who has, that's echo, it means to hold, to keep, not to hear and go out and live any kind of way you want to. You, you haven't held them. You have not kept them. He who has my commandments and keeps them, and he uses that word keeps again, and it almost means the same thing as the first word, tereo. It means to attend to carefully, to guard them. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. How could he not? And I will love him. This is the reward. This is the reward for every believer who guards and keeps and walks in that sphere of righteousness. The grand prize is he will come and manifest himself. That's a grand prize. I'm just not doing it to do it. Because while I'm doing it, while I'm guarding the commandments, while I'm keeping the commandments, while I'm walking with him, he pours his love, he pours his grace, he reveals himself to me more and more. That's how it works here. I heard one pastor say, these things can only come to their fullness by sitting in his presence and absorbing his grace and his love and letting him speak to us. And as I was thinking about that, I couldn't help but to think about Paul's prayer in the book of Ephesians because that's what Paul did. And just let me read it to you. I read parts of it often, but this is his prayer. Paul says, matter of fact, the women's retreat, their conference was on these verses. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, here it is, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. It takes sitting. It takes meditating on his word, a lost art for these things to happen. May be able to comprehend with all the saints What is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ? Because that's my issue. When things go sideways in PV's life, my issue is the first thing I usually say, Lord, do you love me? How could you let this happen? 
I thought I was doing the right thing. And I, 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 Lord, how could you let this happen? To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he closes it. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm almost finished. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Well, here's how. Jesus answered and said to him, you can come up. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he says it the same, he's saying the same thing. He has a little different twist on it, but it boils down to the same thing. If anyone loves me, now it's back to love. He will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine. I didn't make this thing up, but the Father who sent me. We can be stressed out with so many things for so many reasons. But when those things come, when stress comes, when trials come, Let's seek the Lord. Things might not change overnight and things may never change. I started off this way. But remember the grand prize is Jesus will come. And I believe he gives us so much peace, and we will look at that next week. So much peace and comfort in those storms, in those trials that it becomes okay. It, be, it becomes old hat. Once again, it's Father's Day, and I'm reminded of my daughter. And she says, this is my life now, Daddy. I can't go out and do the things I used to do and all the other things I used to do. But she says, the old hymn, I'm satisfied with Jesus. No matter what is going on, I'm satisfied with Jesus. That's where the Lord wants us this morning. That's, the, that's where he wants us for our entire walk with him, no matter what comes our way, no matter if the circumstance change or they don't. We have to come to that point where we can say, my soul is satisfied in Jesus and in Jesus alone. That's what it's about. That's why the trials come our way. He, he, he is conforming us into the glorious image of his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to give us everything we need for this life. And that's what makes it special. So let us continue to walk. Let us continue to walk in humility and lowliness of mind and be about the Father's business because we are definitely in his vineyard. And the good part about it, he's right there with us. Let's stand and close with the song, please.